Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal on Federal News Network. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Thanks for tuning in to Inside the IC. My guest today is Jojo Lesiolangi, Senior Technical Advisor at the Defense Intelligence Agency. As we've covered on this show before with DIA Chief Information Officer Doug Casa, DIA is at a crossroads when it comes to technology. It's in the middle of modernizing the top secret network relied upon by the entire federal government, bringing in cloud computing and laying the groundwork for artificial intelligence and machine learning. I spoke about all that and more with Jojo. This interview originally aired as part of Federal News Network's 2023 DoD Cloud Exchange. This year, we're really focusing on delivering the future architecture of JWIGS. And we are really working on expanding the highway that will deliver a higher capacity and bandwidth to our customers as we enter the cloud modernization as well and the delivery of JWCC and the C2E contract. So from both sides in the IC and the DOD customers-wide, we are really looking to being able to deliver uh, higher throughput and better services to our community as a whole. Got it. And JWIX is the Joint Worldwide Intelligence Communication System, the top secret network really for the entire federal government. And it's about a three-decade-old network that's in need of a tech refresh, and it's now moving into the cloud and, and things like that. So th- it sounds like a pretty dynamic time. You know, what role does the cloud play in the future of JWIX? Oh, that's a great question. So JWIX, if we think about it as a highway, and just like AT&T and Verizon, right, uh, we expanded our capacity on how we support our customer base. And so as we start in investing in better technology, machine learning, tactical communications, and we start trying to integrate how the battle space commanders work together with the intelligence community, they need applications that take higher bandwidth, right? And that they are integrated across the board. Uh, so no longer do we need to have systems that are stovepiped and they can't work together. And so what the cloud systems allow us to do is to be able to have an area where we can move into more smart location and move those applications that can work faster and better with, without having to really worry about having so many different data centers and having to spend so much resources on aging architecture and maintaining our infrastructure that really ages really fast. Uh, so it kind of really helps us being able to integrate our systems together and work smartly. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the intelligence community has been uh, dabbling with the cloud, uh, or uh, maybe a bit more for a while now. There was the the C2S contract, and now you you mentioned the C2E contract that was awarded a few years ago. What do you think the intelligence community and all of its you know security requirements? What, what have you learned so far about using the cloud over the last decade, and, and uh, how does that I guess propel you into the future? It's a partnership. Uh, the risk doesn't necessarily just transfer and we can't necessarily just ignore the risk. We just saw this with the leak of uh, some of the email services, right? So just because we're moving to the cloud does not mean that we no longer have a risk and that it's on the cloud service providers. It's a partnership here. 
where they also have a part of infrastructure that they have to secure and we also as customers have our responsibilities to secure and so if we continue to work together and having a better visibility into what each other uh, does in the community then it kind of strengthens the entire system architecture so um, i think that one of our biggest lessons learned is to ensure that we have a strategy that encompasses an end-to-end security uh, rather than just having to worry about transferring the security and not worrying about it. Got it, yeah, they're still managing your data and there's, I guess, clear expectations that have to be set up front about who's responsible for what. what? Yes. And you also mentioned the JWCC contract and how DOD just finalized that last year. You've got, I guess, more of an array of cloud services now available to you from a contractual perspective. So what's kind of the path forward now that you have both C2E and JWCC in place for taking advantage of those this year? So we have been working together with the, with the programs offices to find efficiencies where it makes sense for us to peer as service providers and ensure that we have those locations, kind of like a co-location of sorts, uh, where customers can have uh, better access to all of the uh, different services that will be available. Uh, That way it's not confusing on having um, one service over here and another one over there. So we've been really working together on understanding where in our locations, where do we peer, how do we structure those peerings and which cloud service provider is going to be and where. Uh, And that's been kind of like a partnership, especially because we've been looking into how do we provide that data closer to the edge and how do we ensure that the architecture is postured for that efficiency. And yeah, I mean, you're talking about how JWix is really a global network with nodes all over the place, right? So you need yes. to really architect it in a way that, that makes sense. Yes, yeah. correct. We, it wouldn't make sense to have a location where we would peer at one site and then it causes latency in another continent, right? So um, it's really important for us to strategize on where we peer, where do we put those services, and as well as um, if we need something closer to the customers, if it's either a regional uh, center that's a little smaller, or if it's something more tactical, that we really work on how that infrastructure is going to kind of work together. And ultimately, it comes down to setting up these uh, cloud access points, right? And and that's how you kind of connect the highway of JWix to the cloud. Is that what you're looking at? Yes, we're paving the infrastructure, you know, the baseline. And then the other services will overlay on top of that. Got it. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, and let's talk about the future of JWix a little bit, uh, some of the requirements, something I know you've been focused on. What what are some of those requirements um, for mission owners? What what do those look like coming down the pipeline? Uh, Right. Uh, So we have varying types of uh, mission customers. Some of our mission customers require... Um, the ability to move large amount of data back and forth. And so um, from that perspective, we are looking into upgrading the capacity of those circuits to make sure that those pipes are large enough to transfer that a large amount of data. For some of our customers, it requires lower latency. And so from that perspective, we look at the location of where we peer and where we have those data centers. 
So if one big Amazon service is in location and they need something smaller, then we put a smaller regional center closer to them. Uh, that might be one of the solutions. Or if uh, our customers require tactical systems to respond to things like um, world events where they need to deploy quickly overnight, we may have a kit that is tactical and deploy it with them that has like a smaller site that is, enables them to have some kind of connectivity that lowers that latency and has access to that data. So we're seeing a lot of varying use cases that we are having to work with industry to understand how do we address specific scenarios. Interesting. So like quickly responding to a contingency or a situation right. like uh, Ukraine, right? Like Correct. that's probably a good example. Yes. You know, what what goes into that to the extent that you can describe it here? Uh, just scaling up something like that, you know, and, and what technologies, I guess, enable something like that? Um, I imagine right. you need to take advantage of, you know, maybe satellite internet sometimes and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, we try to take a look at the use case of what might be needed and try to figure out what may be out there already without having to reinvent the wheel because it takes a long time to design some, something. So one of the biggest things that has aided us is partnering with industry and trying to understand what they have done in, re in their scenarios. Um, if you take a look at some of the telecommunication systems to address some of the issues from a latency perspective with you know, cell phones, for example, right? If yeah. you want to take a look at Netflix or one of your TVs in there, right? So uh, what they have done is they have partnered with cloud service providers to have a smaller kit closer to those towers, right, for the, uh, the cell phone towers. And then it moves the data closer to, to that area so that way you can stream the data faster. So if we need to deploy faster, we look at some of those areas and kind of partner with industries to see what we can learn from them from that perspective. And when you hear about, you know, increased mobility in the future of JWX, that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Not being fixed to a, a large site necessarily, right. but being able to spread out a little bit more and access the network. Correct. Uh, especially if you look at the objectives of JADC2, being able to integrate from anywhere, uh, including the um, deployed personnel that we have, they don't have access to our TSSEI connectivity most of the time. And so we need to be able to communicate with them anywhere in the world. So we need to be able to support those tactical systems, whether it's a cell phone or a ship or an airplane and whatever they need in those circumstances. Is that something that you're already doing today or are you piloting it this year? Where, where does that kind of stand? We're in different phases. Okay. Uh, in, today, we have some a level of solutions that we are able to help our community um, at various locations due to our necessities, right? So um, our high demand and the volatility of uh, you know, the world has demanded that we act fast. So it may not be like a mature solution. It may be something that we had to do because of we had to respond to something. Uh, but we are working on different phases of maturing different solutions. Uh, and that will help us down the road to be able to integrate together. And again, that's Jojo Lesiolangi, Senior Technical Advisor at the Defense Intelligence Agency. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. 
I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC. I'm Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Jojo Lesiolangi, Senior Technical Advisor at the Defense Intelligence Agency. I know something that you've already alluded to and we've talked about is the cybersecurity requirements. Um, you, you mentioned the report of, you know, a Special Operations Command had a, a misconfigured cloud server at some point that was leaving some data, unclassified data, but still yes. sensitive data exposed to the internet. So how, how important is security as you make this shift to the cloud to increased mobility where you have more widely available network services? Uh, you know, what, what's, what's the role of security? And how, I guess how are you getting after that at your kind of global network? Yes. Uh, that is actually something that we are exploring right now. OUSDINS and ODNI have uh, established a joint team that's kind of looking into the security of the mobility systems hmm. so we can address things. It goes beyond just a technical area, but it also goes into governance and policies. As you know, tactical systems, they have to be mobile, so it has to be able to work anywhere in the world. And today, if you look at uh, data governance, right, it could mean that if you are in a certain area of a country, the laws in there locally mandate that that data can be you know, reviewed by either the local government or someone else, right? And so data privacy laws across the world are very different. So one of the biggest challenges is understanding uh, the policies and the laws that regulate uh, the data at that location, the visibility, the security, and how do we protect it? How do we make sure that that is our data and then no one else is going to look at it and that whenever we need it, we can get it back. Um, so those are different challenges, not just a technical, but also a policy. Yeah, that, that seems you know, like a tough nut to crack. What's the path forward? Uh, you know, you're looking at this year, you have this joint team looking at it. What do you think the path forward is to just kind of moving forward with that? Is, a, is it policy solutions? Is it technology solutions? Or is it a mix? Right. It's both. We not only do we have to establish maybe a memorandum of understanding or some kind of agreement between us, right? But we also have to take a look at the data sovereignty, the security of that system to make sure uh, that we are protecting the data at rest. So whatever is, is staying there in storage and that we are also protecting it in transit. So if we are using satellite communications to make sure that that 
uh, data is encrypted correctly and that is not leaking, right? And the equipment there as well that's storing the data that is also secured as well. Interesting. Yeah, that's, uh, that'll be an interesting thing to follow. I'm, and then I think something you mentioned uh, at the, the DOTUS conference just uh, last year, we talked about a little bit when I was out there in San Antonio with you, was the, uh, the ability to have an automated JWIX network that can uh, self-heal. Can you talk a little bit about what that, that means in practice? Yes, so automation is really big uh, right now, especially because systems are so complex that any kind of manual intervention can create an error and cause long outages, right? And so having a system that is smart enough to configure itself and also identify when there's an outage and fix itself um, is really important. So today we are able to uh, demonstrate how we are able to establish a new node and bring it up within a matter of minutes. And that's kind of like uh, the idea that we would like, you know, how you go into your internet service provider, you request that your internet, your service, it gets delivered and then it just kind of works. We would like to make sure that those are things that we're looking into so that way we provide a better service. And not only that, but the service, the uh, system is smart enough to heal itself and protect itself. So if it sees some kind of behavioral anomaly or any kind of security issues, it can kind of react accordingly and kind of secure that area. And I imagine you have to put some, I guess, redundancy in place. So if one element of a network goes down, it can immediately, you know, fix that and, and kind of replace it with, with, with another uh, sort of piece of the highway? Right, definitely. That resiliency is really important, making sure that we have redundant path, redundant connectivity, and that the system is uh, strong enough to protect itself and maintain operations, even if there's like one or two outages, right? Got it. And I mean, th this is all happening to a, to a network that, as I mentioned at the top, is about three decades old. So it's kind of in this place where it's yeah. you're refreshing the tech while also trying to modernize and look to the future. How are you trying to strike that balance where you're just trying to get to a, a better place today while also setting yourselves up for success, you know, more than just a few years down the line, but a couple decades down the line? Uh, yes, uh, it's very challenging. Our old director, General Ashley, said um, to us when we first established Jerwick's modernization that he wanted us to be very uncomfortable and <laughs> go at a speed that make sure that we addressed all of these issues, right? And, and we are, we have been very uncomfortable, but we have been making great straight strides to, to get there. So we, we're working very carefully, um, balancing that risk of making sure that we are tech refreshing the architecture, but at the same time, making sure that we're not causing outages to our users. Uh, so yeah, we're, but we're moving fast. Right, because I mean, it's not just knocking down someone's internet service when they're streaming Netflix. It's it's right. pretty important in terms of how DIA is using network across the globe. And, and you know, I wanted to ask about the path forward for using more cloud computing technologies and applications on the high side, on the classified side. Uh, what's the path forward there for DIA? Right. So today we are having a couple of strategies to get us there. Uh, we actually have a program today called MARS, which is a machine-assisted analytics uh, program that we have. And they are already really ahead of the game. They're really working on moving some of our Intel data into a application that can integrate all of these different kind of stovepipe environments 
uh, that gathers intelligence and it can deliver intelligence to our combatant commands. And so that is kind of already helping us out with um, how we are moving there. They are leading the way and they actually have really good system analytics solutions that we are learning from them as well. And so um, our applications developers, they are really uh, working together with them to learn those systems and also integrate them into other applications that are kind of legacy. Um, and so that's kind of what's helping us get there. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure that plays into JADC2 joint all domain command and control. Uh, you know, what, what are some of the requirements that DIA is specifically focused on with JADC2, which is, of course, a, a kind of cloud-enabled concept? Yes, so JADC2 is a really big effort to integrate all these different services. Uh, the Air Force, the Army, they have some efforts already. And so what we wanna do is be able to integrate uh, the data that the tactical personnel gather from Nippernet, Sippernet to JWIX, make sure that all of these systems that we have are not stovepipe and that they work together. And so we're moving data back and forth to deliver either Intel app or data to our tactical operators on the ground. Yeah, I mean, what, what goes into that? Because that seems like such a new construct. construct. Uh, Nipper and Sipper are right, traditionally like completely separate by right. design, right. Uh, by, by almost regulation. So right. you know, how do you get, get to that kind of uh, concept? Yeah. It's a huge effort, right? You know, it's still starting. It just started a couple, a couple of years ago, the concept, and we're still even working through a lot of the designs today. Uh, and so uh, what that means for us is that we realize that our um, tactical systems, our military uh, troops, you know, they don't have access to TSSCI systems. So we need to be able to communicate to them on the ground. And so how do we send them data uh, faster, right? How do we al allow them and enable them to have that data faster? And so we need to have a way for these systems to integrate. And the security is around it is some of the things that we're looking into. How do we protect the data as it goes up and down? How do we make sure that the data is stripped? How is it tagged? And that all goes into zero trust. Right, data tagging and making sure that you have access to the right data. Uh, and so those are really interesting areas that we're really researching, but I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. So it's, it's kind of in the research phase and it's not quite uh, into maybe the piloting phase yet, is that? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's still something that it's evolving, yes. Do you think that there will be any sort of, you know, projects or anything like that to, to push the ball forward that are particularly important that folks should know about uh, in the coming you know, year or, or two? Right, um, I believe OUSDINS and ODNI had um, a small group a couple of weeks ago where they were discussing how they would like to move forward. They're still coming up with a strategy on that way forward, uh, but I'm still kind of waiting uh, to hear back from them, you know, what the next step is going to be. Interesting, yeah, that'll, that'll be great to, to watch as we move forward here, and I mean, you, you can kind of get into a conversation about, you know, classification policies and there's yes. just a lot going on there. But obviously we're talking about cloud technologies and extending cloud services to the edge, really. You talked about getting data to the operators on, on the edge who don't have access to 
highly classified systems to, to these uh, rooms where you can access that top secret SCI network. So you need to find a way to get them the data they need. How are you extending uh, cloud services to the edge? We've talked about that a little bit with kind of the mobility requirements. Is there anything else that we should know about just getting the cloud out to the, the edge, wherever that might be in the world? Well, the systems that we have today, we use different services, right? And so our deployable communications kits, um, one of them is called Falcon, and that enables us to be able to leverage alternate means of communication so that we can provide services to uh, the tactical teams from anywhere in the world. What we're trying to do with those systems is to ensure that uh, they grow from there. That goes back to something that we worked, uh, that we talked about earlier, touring the system and adding more services on in a kind of thoughtful manner where we are able to work out the issues with data sovereignty and then store data and ensure that people have access even if they were disconnected. So those are things that it's evolving, but right now we are still in the beginning phases on, on, on those efforts. Interesting, and, and so the Falcon deployable it's a deployable comms kit that you've had in place yes. now for, for how long? We've had it actually for a year now. Okay. And, and it's working pretty well. Okay. And is there a plan to maybe expand that or is, is it yes. pretty limited at this point? Or, or it's, yes, it's okay. pretty limited at this point. Uh, and we are working on expanding it this year. So we're starting to work on the engineering and testing of those additional capabilities. But we're also working together with the services and we've never done that before. We have monthly engagements with the engineers across the services to understand their requirements and what they have from tactical kits because we realize that each one of them has their own solution. Mm. And so to ensure that we have one platform that can integrate, those are some of the things we're looking into. As an example, uh, let's say that Air Force has their own tactical kit to move the data closer to the edge. They may have an Amazon outpost and the Army may have decided to use a Dell server, as an example. And while the Amazon Outpost is great and the Dell are both the, uh, great, the systems may not be interchangeable. So what could end up be happening is that they may need access to some kind of data we may have on the cloud, but the data can't move closer to the edge because it doesn't work with that system. And so we're trying to establish an architecture that can work across all of the systems, regardless of which service provider you have or which equipment you have. In. And so those are some of the foundations that we're developing right now. Yeah, I, you know, in the time we have left, I, I wanted to ask you about another aspect of this conversation that we can't really ignore, workforce, both internal, and then I know you have a pretty big contractor workforce, I'm sure, at DIA that's sort of operating a lot of these technologies. What do you need there in terms of skills, qualifications? What does the future uh, workforce look like that's operating the, these new technologies? Yeah, uh, our workforce requirements are shifting a lot, especially because technology is changing so much. So we're really looking into people who have an understanding of data science, data analysis, uh, people who understand DevSecOps, right, as well. How do, do you develop and secure applications? How do you deliver applications? Cloud environments, how do they protect cloud environments and how do you create them, right, containerization? And since we're talking about data moving closer to the edge and back and forth and standardization, 
So virtualization, right? A standard virtualization architecture that can um, support systems, right? That um, can be multi-cloud. Those are like some of the biggest shifts that we're seeing in the in the industry. Automation as well, right? And the self-healing of systems, not just networks, but the entire system, right? Uh, so those are big things where in the past we were looking at different uh, kind of skills. These skills are shifting highly today. And, and so I think that those are some of the biggest areas that I'm seeing that technology kind of grow. I mean, back to the security yeah. conversation earlier, just being able to configure a cloud server properly day in yes. and day out is probably pretty important there as well. Right, right, yes. And so, uh, I mean, as a technically focused person yourself, what do you think is important in terms of, I guess, attracting new talent and retaining the talent in the IC from a technical perspective moving forward? And Mr. Costa is really focused on that. It's actually his number one priority. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is mentoring our younger engineers from the moment they get to our agency. Uh, and we track them through an entire one year. They have a sponsor. Um, we give them training and we kind of take a look at what interests them. So one of the biggest thing is if you're not interested in your job, then you're not really going to do well. So we try to hone those skills of what they're interested in and try to grow them in that area, but also have a mentor that really looks out for them and guides them. And are there any technology trends that just in general you're watching from DIA that's particularly of interest mm-hmm. to you? I am currently watching how quantum communications is working. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, InQtel came up with this like uh, quantum architecture that they kind of helped me understand a little bit. So there, there was like the quantum application and and the quantum uh, computing area. And so I'm kind of looking at the quantum communications area, which is kind of like where uh, you know a, a system like JWIX would would kind of apply to. And so taking a look at wh- how we are evolving from there, that's something I'm keeping my eye on. Interesting. Uh, that seems pretty important to a, a, an agency like DIA. Is, you know, we know, I think, in general, a quantum computer might be several decades far off from here. Mm-hmm. Is quantum communications, I don't know, is that in the, on the same timeline, but it's still something that you think is important to track? Or where right. does that go? So, you know, uh, it may be really far off, but... The important part here is the strategy on how we leave a legacy of JWIX modernization. We started with a system that is old and outdated, and what we want to start, what we want to leave behind as a legacy is something that can, keeps going even after we leave, right? And so it doesn't stop optimizing the system, doesn't stop just here with JWIX modernization being delivered. So after we finish this iteration of JWIX, then you know the next one is going to come what is next what's the next capability what are our customers really needing and so i as a the chief architect needs to make sure that i'm keeping an eye on those technologies so that when it gets here i'm not caught off guard and so those are some of the things that are important to me to leave a legacy of a system that can stay up to date sure i mean not just keeping an eye on the near term right which yes. is important but the, the very far term at the same time and then, of course, there, the other side of the quantum conversation is quantum encryption and the security of data today, how that could be uh, decrypted in the future. Is that something that you're worried about at all as a future architect? 
Uh, yeah, you know, the NSM 10 just came out, right? NSA is saying that encryption it may not be as secure, and how do we address certain things on a quantum communications area, right? Uh, so taking a look at how do we protect the system uh, five years down the road is, is really important for us. And how do we do that is something that uh, we're really working closely with NSA on how do we want to address those, those risks. And again, that was Jojo Lesiolangi, Senior Technical Advisor at the Defense Intelligence Agency. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.